Price, that's the number one technical indicator. You do best by investing for the longer term. If you can't explain what the business is doing, then that is a huge red flag. Some technological change is going to put you out of business. It really is a genuinely extraordinary situation. Hi, everyone. I'm Ed Gotham, and welcome to Opto Sessions, where we interview the top traders and investors from around the world, uncovering their secrets to success. Today, I welcome Jesse Felder, founder of the Felder Report. Jesse began his professional career at Bear Stearns and later co-founded a multi-billion dollar hedge fund in Santa Monica, California. Today, he manages the Felder Report from his home in Oregon. Jesse runs a really fascinating blog at thefelderreport.com and I've dug into some of his more recent musings on the market, including why it's time to get greedy in the energy sector and the vampire squid that's potentially behind the recent call buying frenzy in Tesla, sending its share price rocketing. Enjoy. Hi, Jesse. Great to have you on the show. Uh, thanks for giving up your time. How are you today? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me on the show. I'm excited to uh, have this conversation with you. <laughs> um, now, you've got a podcast. Uh, I've listened to a few episodes recently, Super Investors and the Art of Worldly Wisdom, where you, you talk with a number of like, very experienced, successful investors and traders. Um, the goal being to try and distill down sort of what makes them so successful in, their, in the financial markets. I was interested to know what common traits, if any, have you seen whilst interviewing these, these people? Um, was there any themes that came up? Yeah, I, th I think the main thing is that everyone um, that I've, I've had on my podcast has spent a, a good deal of time studying different, different uh, you know, strategies or you know, techniques in the markets, and they've found something that resonates with them and uh, they've really kind of built a unique expertise in that area and been committed to it for, for a period of time. And I think that's, that's really the only, uh, or I guess the main common denominator uh, among them is that, uh, you know, they, they have a, a unique process in the markets and uh, they've been able to, to commit to it through thick and thin. And how important do you think this sort of like finding your your niche or, or what have you through experience, I suppose, is that that sort of essential is what we're implying, what you're implying to being successful in investing, et cetera. That finding something that works for you is pretty important. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's probably the most important thing. I think one of the mistakes, you know, the big mistakes a lot of investors make in the markets is trying to adopt somebody else's, um, you know, process even though it might not, they might not believe in it completely. And, and the reason they probably don't believe in it is they haven't done the, the legwork to really, um, you know, uh, research it and find out, you know, why they should uh, use it and believe in it. I, you know, a lot, of, a lot of people just end up trying to piggyback on other people's work. And I, and I think that's, that's just kind of a dangerous thing to do because <clears throat> when you do go through difficult times and you're going to go through difficult times, you have to have that faith in your process. And that faith comes from experience and understanding and all those things. Yes. Yeah. And why do you, why do you think it is that, that it's very difficult for people just to copy and paste something else? Is it the psychological aspect that like you were sort of implying there, 
they have to find someone that really resonates with them as an individual and not every, yeah, every individual is different and therefore you can't do the copy and paste because something like someone have, might have a really high risk tolerance and can make place big bets or whatever, but others can't, this, this sort of thing. Yeah, I think it's, I think it's you know, when you look at what, um, you know, a lot, of, a lot of different strategies, obviously every strategy goes through good times and bad. And what you find with, uh, I guess, investors piggybacking on, on these strategies, they, they kind of just like to trend follow, essentially, you know, invest in the ones that have done well over time and, uh, you know, kind of um, uninvest or, you know, sell the strategies that, uh, you know, haven't performed. And so, I mean, probably a good example of this is, you know, in, in, in 2007, you know, prior to the financial crisis and, and really, you know, over the last few years, it's been really difficult to get anybody interested in, um, you know, any type of hedging strategies, short selling or, um, you know, mm-hmm. tail risk hedging, anything like that. But then in 2009, after the financial crisis, that's what everybody wanted, right? They wanted to pile into tail risk um, strategies, tail hedging strategies. And so, uh, you know, and that was the exact wrong time to do that. And so I think that's probably what people do with all types of different strategies is, you know, you look today, probably people are abandoning value investing in droves um, and for passive, which is essentially, in my mind, a momentum strategy. And um, this is probably the worst time to abandon value. Value probably, um, is probably the most attractive time to be a value investor uh, in a long, long time. And so I think that's just kind of people's human nature is unless you believe in the strategy and understand it, your human nature kind of drives you to to do the wrong thing at the wrong time. <laughs> yeah, that is very interesting. And that's something um, this contrarian point of view it's something we we'll pick up on quite a few times later on in, in a, lot, a few of your articles are sort of focusing on that area, which is, I suppose, yeah, that going where the place where, you know, everyone else isn't is sometimes a place where the biggest returns can, can be had, I suppose. I just wanted to get a bit of more insight about you as a person, your career. Is it, could you give us a brief overview of, of, of your, your sort of um, financial career to date? Sure. Yeah. I, um, I went to work straight out of college. Um, I got a, a job at Bear Stearns in, La, in their Los Angeles office. And uh, I essentially started out just running trade tickets. <laughs> so between brokers and the, and the, the trading desk. And uh, I found somebody at Bear, though, who was essentially running a hedge fund within, within Bear. And I went to work for him. And, you know, it was kind of like an apprenticeship where he, uh, I got to learn the ins and outs of his strategy, which was kind of a value-based discipline, um, but also with a you know heavy emphasis on following insider um, activity, buying and selling. Eventually, we we left to form our own hedge fund in uh, in Santa Monica, and I did that for several years before I I, I was head trader, co-portfolio manager, and whatnot. Um, and through that was through the late, you know, 98, 99, 2000. So right during the peak of the dot-com mania, I had kind of a front row seat, which was, which was fascinating. But I left the hedge fund literally in March of 2000, right? You know, within maybe a week or two of the, the peak of the, the NASDAQ bubble and moved here to Bend, Oregon, where I live now. And I've essentially just been um, managing my own money, writing about the markets, um, you know, ever since. Awesome. 
And um, during your experience with the uh, hedge fund that you, you co-founded, is there any ma like major takeaways that you sort of learned through that experience that has helped your trading investing now? Um, to distill it down to one thing, that's tough. I mean, I, I learned, obviously I learned so much, but I think probably the main thing that I learned was it, during a mania, um, it's very difficult to kind of keep a level head. I, I watched, the, you know, part of the reason I left the fund was um, my, you know, co-founder, was, uh, you know, we had a value discipline, that was our mandate, and he decided to, um, you know, put a lot of the, you know, kind of abandon that value discipline and, and put a lot of money into a lot of these high-flying tech, tech stocks. But, you know, to watch, you know, just droves of people literally quit their day jobs and day trade, you know, become day traders full-time, and then even, you know, uh, you know my, my partners at the firm kind of, lose their minds, you know, for lack of a better, a better description, uh, as a part of this mania was, was really kind of astounding to me. And, uh, you know, it just makes me think of a quote, I think it's JP Morgan. Um, I'm just going to paraphrase. It's, you know, nothing so undermines um, an investor's, um, you know, rash, rationality or psychology than watching his neighbor get rich. And that's just what manias do to us. It's, it's, it's so difficult to watch people get rich. And we, I saw that again during the housing bubble, you know, five, five or so years later. And I think we're, we're watching it again today in, in certain respects. In just the housing bubble, or do you, would you say that was having a similar sort of uh, time in terms of, in terms of tech prices, this sort of thing? Do you, do you think we're having a bit of a bubble there? Or is it, I mean, there's so many people to say different, have different opinions on this, but um, What's your opinion on it? Well, I think in terms of the, the stock market, we're absolutely in the midst of another, maybe, you know, a speculative mania that's bigger than anything we've seen, you know, going back prior to the, the dot-com mania. You look at what's going on in the options markets, you know, as a, as a function of, you know, the lockdown and so many people opening Robinhood accounts and, and just day trading. And then you look at the volume in the options market you know, that's the most speculative um, side of the, the equity markets. And it's literally off the charts, the amount of money yeah. being poured into call options that expire in a week or two, uh, and then all geared towards the, the highest, you know, uh, risk names in the market, most highly valued names in the market. To me, I mean, yeah, that's a very clear sign of, uh, of, of another mania. Is this a slightly different to before where obviously interest rates are at rock bottom? Do you think this sort of like structure, equity prices will be supported at these levels going forward? Or are we inevitably going to see some sharp pullback similar to, you know, the, the, the sort of tech bubble in the 2000s? Well, I think, you know, I think George Soros has said that, uh, you know, every bubble, every mania is driven by a, um, you know, a misconception, uh, a, a common misconception, I think. What's driving this one is the Fed and the idea that the Fed can prop up the markets indefinitely. Um, but I think when you look at uh, what's really going on in terms of liquidity, Stan Druckenmiller has talked about this, um, you know, recently, um, is that the Fed is literally just trying to soak up the massive issuance of the Treasury. And, you know, QE up to this point over the last 10 years, you know, when the Fed has been printing money to buy up Treasuries, it's reduced the supply of financial assets. So reduce supply supports prices. 
but QE today, I don't, I don't really call it QE anymore. I think it's more just standard fiscal dominance where the, the Fed is being tasked with just soaking up the excess supply of treasury. So that's a little bit different. Uh, actually, it's, it's dramatically different actually than the QE of the past. So um, the, the, the supply of uh, you know, financial assets is, is actually expanding and the Fed is doing what it can to try and mop up some of that supply to prevent uh, a collapse in prices in both treasuries and in equities. Um, and, and so I think that misconception that the Fed can prop up the markets is, is an important one because I, I think at some point, if the Fed does print enough money to buy up all the extra issuance from the treasury, the dollar is going to, to tank and then the, the, the Fed will be faced with a situation of trying to protect the currency or protect the, the, the markets. And um, I don't think they'll be able to do both. Yeah, I see that. Do you think there's going to be a requirement for more activity from the Fed from these levels to see the US dollar go down more? I mean, it's fallen, but it's, it's gone through a sort of consolidation period of a recent month or so. Do you see that continuing without more support? Or I think actually in the short term, the dollar could probably rally. Mm. We've seen, you know, in the, in the futures markets, you've seen a huge... Too heavy, heavily one-sided. Absolutely. I mean, too many people betting against the dollar. Uh, and, you know, I think it's the, you know, long euro positions that have gotten, you know, just massive. And, and so usually you probably have to unwind that, that trade to an extent. There's also, you know, the fact that, uh, you know, the fiscal side has, you know, been put on hold. And that's probably short-term bullish for the dollar. Yeah, I see. Okay. So, if the dollar does crash, what does that mean for stock? Because stocks, uh, commodities as well, um, it would tend to support higher prices there. Um, do you agree with that, or what do you think? Well, I, I, you know, I think probably what a dollar crash would be pointing to would be a, uh, you know, a, a big part of, if you look at, you know, the trends of the last 10 years, right? You look at US equity per outperformance versus the rest of the world has been greater than anything we've seen before in history. The dollar has been very strong, you know, since uh, 2011, 12. Um, and, you know, all of those kind of trades go together, interest rates have come down. And I think probably what we're headed towards now is um, a, a stagflationary environment here in the U.S. The Fed has said they're hell-bent on creating inflation, and a declining dollar would also be in, inflationary. Rising you know, inflation and in rates would, is, is not a good thing for the equity market. Right? You have uh, you know, risk-free rates rising. We've actually seen that to a little bit. I mean, look at interest rates have just risen a little bit over the last couple of weeks and we've seen the market you know um really sell off kind of significantly here this week and in, in the last yeah. few weeks this is in this is in bonds right yeah well but the the rising interest rates falling you know falling bond prices has meant rising competition you know for for, for equities and so i think that's part of what's going on in equities um starting to struggle over the last couple of months okay okay and, and so i i do think we're probably headed for a stagflationary environment so a lot of people who think you know a dollar crash should be bullish for stocks i think that's probably dead wrong because it probably entails rising interest rates which are not a good thing for for equities yeah very interesting and what about um in the commodity markets i mean you've had a post recently about gold trying to uh, ascertain if it's too expensive at the moment what's your can you go into a little bit of detail on that sure yeah i mean i think long term i'm very bullish on gold and i think gold probably has has plenty of upside ahead of it you look at past 
bull markets in gold and uh, history would suggest this, this bull market's only just getting started. But in the short run, like I said, I think the dollar could, could continue to rise a little bit in the short run and gold's probably gotten a little bit of ahead of itself. Um, if, you know, once inflation really starts to take off, that's, that's when gold will, will really start to take off. But I do think we probably are going to muddle through some, some disinflationary months here, potentially, just as a result of the drop, you know, dramatic drop in GDP and some other things and, and demand in a bunch of areas. So, you know, I think in the short run, um, you know, I'd be a little bit more cautious towards gold, but long run, I'm, I'm definitely, um, you know, very bullish. Yeah. And are you able to, um, in the post, you, you talk about the major drivers of gold, and I thought that was really interesting, related to, I believe, fiscal-related activity. Are you able to describe that a bit? It was, I thought it was a pretty interesting thing. Sure. I think, you know, long-term, I think, you know, there's all these people look at so many different drivers for, for the dollar. But I think longer term, <clears throat> it's really the, the U.S. Uh, fiscal situation that I believe is the driver of the dollar. So, you know, the, the deficit widens and the dollar declines. Um, you just look at at least 25, 30 years of history and there's a pretty close relationship there. So, um, you know, that is, all, right, dollar declines, that's very bullish for gold. And so really you could, you could kind of cut the dollar out and look at what's the fiscal situation uh, in the U.S.? And that should tell you whether you want to own gold or not. So when the deficit is, is uh, you know, very wide or widening, you probably want to make sure you own some gold because uh, that seems to you know, be a, an important driver. You look at you know, the, when the last time we had a budget surplus in the U.S. was 2000, peak of the dot-com mania, and that was when gold bottomed. The deficit started widening out as a part of that recession. Um, and that began the gold bull market from you know 2001 to until 2011. That 10 years of really you know the deficit going from zero to a trillion dollar deficit uh, was really the kind of the underlying tailwind I think for for the gold price. Now we've seen you know uh, when when Trump took office we had a 300 billion dollar deficit. He took it to a trillion and now it's three trillion. That is a is a very you know strong tailwind for gold prices um, going forward. And if there's not the, the impetus in Washington to do anything about the deficit, deficit yeah. and you know, it makes sense to just keep hold your gold. Yeah, no, that makes a lot of sense. Um, really interesting. I've never, uh, uh, it's the first time I've seen someone sort of relate the gold price to, to the, that sort of indicator, but it makes, it makes so, so much sense. And it's really interesting to get that, that sort of um, angle from you. Um, something, obviously the US elections coming up soon, um, probably a pretty high period of, of volatility. Um, something that, um, as a post, you, you talk about mastering the art of doing nothing, which I thought was quite um, a good time to discuss it. Um, why, why do you think this is a good tactic to have in sort of your arsenal as an investor? Well, when you, you know, I've, I've been really since I, I I've been interested in, in, in finance and the markets for, for a long time and studying the greatest investors, um, uh, you know, uh, of our time and really, you know, back before our time, you find that, um, you know, I, I mentioned earlier, they all have a certain discipline that they stick to. Part of that discipline is, is when there is no opportunity uh, or really not attractive opportunities, you know, the, you have to, to, to be disciplined and, and discerning. And I think that that really the only thing that separates the best investors from the rest are they are just much more discerning. They don't see things that they think, 
you know, this looks attractive. I'm going to put some money into it. They wait until something is so attractive that they can't uh, resist putting money to work uh, in, in that way. And so I think that if you just wait for those types of opportunities where you say, you know, like, just pretend you're not an investor at all most of the time <laughs> until you until you something comes along and you say, you know what, I, I have to, this is so attractive. This is such an incredible opportunity. I have to put some money to work here. Um, then, you know, your, your, your batting average, I've been watching the World Series, I'm a big Dodger fan, so your batting average will be much, much better if you just kind of, you know, uh, you know, like Warren Buffett has said, there are, are no called strikes in investing. So you can just wait. And I think just waiting is the right thing to do for most people most of the time. Mm. And it's interesting. I've, I've been, we've had uh, Jack Schwager on the podcast recently and I've just been reading his new book and he talks a lot about that. That's one of the main things that a lot of the successful traders um, he, he's interviewed has, have in common. They're very good at doing that. I, I absolutely love his books and I've read them all several times over. And actually there's in, there's in one of those books and I was thinking of him when I was just, you know, talking about pretending you're not a trader because I, I think he writes about a time you know, that's one of the common denominators in, in what he's researched. And he writes about a time where he was, you know, in publishing and he gave up trading for a time until he was, you know, still going through his charts and keeping up. And he, and he saw a chart that looked so, you know, I said, this is the perfect opportunity. And he put some money to work there and it, and it worked out great. And he said, you know, just for him, pretending he wasn't a trader for a time was actually a very successful way to go about it. Yeah. So that I'm, the obvious um, issue here is mentally, obviously it can be very difficult to do that because, oh, you know, fear of missing out. And you, we just you touched on it earlier that if you're seeing other people make money, you feel as though, you, you know, you need to get involved. How do, how do you approach that, that problem? Well, I guess the way that I approach that problem is um, I just know through experience every time I've, um, I've, I've put, to, put on a good, um, investment uh, let's just stick to i guess investing right now versus versus trading yeah um it's it's felt very lonely and very um contrained for example in 2000 i think it was i can't remember it was 2010 or 11 during the bp Deepwater horizon spill um you know this it was on the news literally 24 7 was on cnn and everybody thought bp was going to go bankrupt and i remember buying stock and it was playing in a golf tournament with a bunch of brokers and uh, they were kind of talking about different market things. And I mentioned BP and everybody looked at me like, like the, the conversation stopped. People put their food down and they said, you're crazy to be buying BP. But when you looked at their cash flow, right, their, their, their cash flow was like $30 billion a, a year. And the, the, the estimates, the worst, uh, you know, the worst case uh, scenario, uh, the estimates of the worst case were, that was going to cost them 30 billion over, you know, a number of years to get out of this. And I said, so there's literally no chance BP was going to go bankrupt, but the stock was trading like far below liquidation value. So, you know, that to me, that's always the type of opportunity where when people think you're crazy, that's, that's, you know, a great opportunity. Conversely, whenever I've ever felt that like, you know what, I'm, I'm jealous of somebody else making money doing X or whatever. Uh, I've just seen it over and over and over again that, that when people, uh, act on those impulses, um, it usually ends, ends badly. Uh, so that's really the thing that, you know, um, drives my understanding about that doing nothing um, process. 
Yeah, and touching on you touched on contrarian viewpoints there. You've um, talked about rec- uh, the energy sector recently. You think that's setting up to be some an interesting place to invest in. You mentioned sentiment trader said that the energy sector is now the most hated stock market sector of all time. Um, but yeah, obviously you you think this is an opportunity and. Uh, are you able to explain what's uh, the appealing aspect of energy at the moment? Sure. I mean, to me, it reminds me of uh, the gold mining stocks back in the summer and fall of, of 2015. Um, that summer, the Wall Street Journal, <clears throat> Jason Zweig, who's a terrific writer, and I, I really like everything he does, but uh, you know, he's admitted he, he made a mistake in calling gold a pet rock back in, in the summer of 2015. But it's that type of extreme negative sentiment. Um, that creates opportunity, and um, I think it's it's we've seen so much. Uh, the Economist recently essentially called the end of the oil age. Yeah, which yeah. The last time they did that was 2001, right before one of the biggest booms in the oil market of all time. Um, we're just seeing so much, um, so many signs that this sector is so hated, and it's gotten incredibly cheap. I, I, there are stocks in the in this sector. Where you, I mean, literally, they're trading at, uh, and this is why it reminds me of the gold miners. The gold miners in 2015, stocks like New Gold and Gold Corp, and, and um, you know, were literally trading at 50 cent, you know, 50 percent of their liquidation value. And you don't get that type of opportunity in the market very often at all. To to where you literally buy up the whole stock, just sell off the gold mines to other miners and double your money. Yeah, yeah. And that's where, we're, that's where we're at in the energy sector in a lot of these stocks is they're just trading so far below liquidation value. And at the same time, I just, you know, uh, there's uh, a ton of insider buying in this sector too, which is something I've followed for 25 years. Mm, okay. um, and there's literally no other insider buying in the market. Um, it's, there's, there's a fair amount of insider selling broadly. Um, but the insider buying uh, in the energy sector is significant. And so that's to me, you know, insider CEOs, CFOs saying that, you know, the stocks are undervalued and they, they think yeah, that yeah. they have a brighter future than what the market is pricing in. Very interesting. And when we talk about the energy sector, we're talking about primarily that sector is made up of oil companies, et cetera. Is that, is that correct? Yeah, I'm, I'm mainly focused on the oil and gas exploration and production companies and the midstream energy companies, so pipelines and, and those types of things, they all seem to be, I mean, there's pipeline companies that are, you know, have, you know, eight, 10% dividend yields right now. Nobody wants to own them. Uh, it's 0% interest rates. You can get 0% on treasury bills, but still nobody wants to buy uh, a midstream energy company with an eight or 10% dividend yield. It's pretty mind boggling. Yeah. Yeah. And, Obviously, when when they're in deep downtrends, how, how do you time sort of entries and that sort of thing? Or does it obviously you don't have to time it exactly right if you're doing investing more for the longer term? But um, obviously, some sectors end up not doing that well when they're in downtrends. And we're highlighting the energy sector, something that's going to potentially look more interesting. Than that is that that is mainly due to the financials that they have. Is it so? We discussed they're trading fifty percent below value. Some of them. And their cash flows, I assume, whilst going down, or uh, you know, I know they're they're sort of diversifying into other areas. A lot of them, but you see their sort of um, results getting better in the future, even though oil, etc., is a sort of um, an asset that might might not be as um, uh, so much demand for in, in the future. 
Well, there, you know, there's uh, two sides um, to that question. One, in terms of the downtrends, um, I started studying, you know, technical analysis about uh, 15 years ago. And I, I've kind of distilled my focus into momentum. And I want to pay close attention to momentum. So when a stock or sector has very strong downside momentum, I'll stay away from it. I don't care how cheap it is. Um, what I want to start seeing are signs of that downside momentum waning. So, um, you know, price can, can um, continue to decline, but as long as it's not declining at kind of the, that same rate that it was, we're in like in free fall decline. That to me is a sign that that trend is running out of steam. So that downtrend is running out of steam. So, um, you know, part of that process is looking at momentum in a way that somebody like Michael Oliver looks like. I had him on my podcast and he does some fascinating and unique work in terms of momentum. And then also I've been trying to get Tom DeMarco on my podcast. I met him back in 2005 and he's created, um, you know, a number of indicators that are trend-based indicators. And Tom is a you know, brilliant guy. He's worked for whoever has the you know, biggest hedge fund on the planet. He's you know, Paul Tudor Jones, you know, he, he worked for Steve Cohen. Um, and now he started his own kind of research firm. But uh, so that, in that terms of that side of it, in terms of catching a falling knife, I, I don't want to have anything to do with anything that has strong downside momentum. I'm looking for something that has signs of slowing momentum and potentially a trend reversal. Um, but in terms of kind of the, 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 the fundamental you know, side of these things, um, yeah, they, they, they get to a certain price where the margin of safety in them is uh, becomes so attractive that I think it's very difficult to lose money as long as you have a time frame, you know. So you're just waiting for the the people to it, them to get hot again, basically, and ride that trend up. Yeah, and then kind of from a macro perspective too, it's absolutely mind-boggling to me that you have the most powerful entity on the planet, the Federal Reserve, uh, that has decided we're going to do whatever it takes to create inflation. And what's the sector, the single sector in the market that's the best way to protect yourself against inflation? It's energy, hands down. You look at inflationary environments, energy sector you know, outperforms by 5 to 10% a year in inflationary environments. And uh, so you have, you have the Fed saying we want to create inflation at the same time. The energy sector is the most hated sector of all time. To me, it just screams opportunity. Yeah, that's, that is... <laughs> makes a lot of sense why do you think why do you think other people aren't looking at it yet why is it so far off the radar of, of most people well i think there's a couple of reasons one you know what, what's the most important you know i guess uh, popular segment of the market right now would be tech um but it's i think a lot of that is driven not not so much by passive investing which is yes driving it um but we're seeing flows into esg uh, type of strategy, socially conscious types of things. Um, and so it's not just passive investing, which would by, on its own, you know, be an uh, anti-energy strategy because passive is pro-momentum. And so things that are going up get more money and things that are going down get less money when money goes into the indexes. So that's just a bad thing for energy. But when you have money going into ESG, essentially out of actively managed funds but in, in, into ESG, most of those ESG funds own no energy. So this is the, this is the trend that people think that, you know, I'm investing mm. in socially conscious companies, which when you look at the holdings, of a lot of these ESG funds, it's, it's a joke. I mean, it's, 
you know, you can't be buying a lot of these stocks that are treating their employees poorly and, and whatnot. So ESG is kind of just to me, uh, a popularity momentum trade right now. People are buying it because it's done well. People are buying it because it has a bigger allocation to the FANG stocks than passive funds. It's really kind of a tech momentum trade. But the other side of that is energy, which is which is dramatically underperforming because it is kind of the anti-ESG trade. Yeah, it's very interesting. And what so what you talked about momentum and you, you use that as, as a good indicator of, you know, um, you want to see that sort of the, the steam coming off. How, how do you track that and, and analyze that on, on these charts? Well, I mean, yeah, there's super simple ways on, you know, technical charts. You can look at things like RSI, and whatever, and, you know, people traditionally use RSI as like an overbought, oversold. But um, the way I think probably RSI should be used is when you have really strong, you know, RSI, that, that overbought signal is not a bearish signal at all. That's a sign that <clears throat> something has really strong upside and is likely to continue higher. Um, so that's kind of what I mean in terms of momentum. Somebody like Michael Oliver has dis distilled it even further where he looks at price relative, you know, like to, relative to its 10-day moving average, price relative to its 40-week moving average, just different types of moving averages. And when you see those kinds of extremes above and be it below a moving average, um, you know, that that's a sign of strong momentum too. So um you know when momentum is very strong it, it typically continues uh in that direction is something that you know uh, probably one of the, the ba most basic things that i've learned from technical analysis and really has helped me from you know uh to avoid you know value traps and things yep yeah um and what's the, what what do you think is the best way to get exposure to this sort of sector are you, are you looking at funds like spider funds of the energy sector or or, or individual stocks or uh, yeah both i mean i i think for for some investors you know etfs are probably the best way to go um you know in terms of that the thing with xle which is probably the big you know the big energy etf is that i think about 50 percent of that fund is just exxon and, and chevron <laughs> and so if you like those two stocks you know xle is probably a good way to go it's it's but, but to me, um, you know, I, I, you can buy something like just the pure oil and gas producers ETF. Um, and that's going to be uh, probably uh, a little bit more leveraged to the, to the you know, the, uh, those companies that are more um, exposed um, or leveraged to the, to the oil price. And so I think if you wanted a more pure play, probably focusing on the oil and gas producers is better um you know uh, there's also you know a few individual stocks i'm looking at that have had terrific insider buying yeah um, continental resources is one where you know harold ham has been buying tens of millions of dollars worth of stock he's one of the most successful um you know uh, founders in that space yeah and uh, when he goes in and buys 50 60 million dollars worth of stock um, and says he's going to continue buying to me, that's a very strong sign of confidence that his shares are undervalued. Yeah, really interesting. Um, and I'd like to go talk about his value versus growth um, argument again, because I think that's that one we, we touched on, but it'd be good to go deeper into it. You, you had an article recently, recently saying, is value really dead? What's the argument for value at the moment? Are we talking about something similar again? It's the contrarian uh, trade. Is that where, why it offers opportunity? Well, you know... It, so there's, you know, I wrote that post because I really wanted to distinguish between um, traditional value investing 
and quantitative values. So it's become much more popular just because ETFs are popular and all these things to um, you know, use some type of quantitative value. So we're just gonna buy the 10% cheapest stocks in the market or something like that. Um, but as you know, Mike Green has pointed out, when you're doing that, you're essentially betting against passive investing because those 10% cheapest stocks in the market are suffering from that kind of anti-momentum of money moving into passive indexes. So money moves into passive, and more money goes into those stocks that are rising um, and becoming you know, bigger in terms of market cap, and less money goes into those stocks that are uh, you know, falling, becoming a smaller part of the index. And so saying that I'm going to buy those stocks that are kind of those anti-momentum trades is essentially what quantitative value is, and, and that's a very difficult thing. I, I, personally, I don't consider quantitative value to be real, real value investing. I think when you study real value investing, you have to do security analysis on uh, individual um, stocks. You have to determine, um, you know, like Ben Graham taught, is my principal protected one? Am I going to get a decent rate of return to? And there's no way of doing that on a group of a group of stocks when you're just buying uh, a segment of the market, no matter what. I mean, because actually you look at the value sector segment of the market and it's it's not uh, cheap historically. And so, I mean, hypothetically, you could say I'm going to buy the 10% cheapest stocks in the market. Well, if that if that decile of the market is trading, uh, you know, 100, you know, uh, uh, 100% above its, um, you know, historical valuation mean, then you're not value investing, you're, but you're still buying expensive stocks. And so, um, I, I do think traditional, you know, we've, we've said quanti- you know, value investing has been hammered. It's been the worst performance I saw in Financial Times today. It's the worst performance in 200 years for, for value yeah. investing. And the va- that value segment of the market, yes, that might be true. But um, if you just, I think if you're a traditional value investor looking for those opportunities that pull your cash off the sidelines that because they're so attractive, over the last 10 years, there have been wonderful opportunities to put money to work in value, you know, in, in these types of opportunities, but they haven't been in a quantitative way. It's been in a much more, much more individual microeconomic uh, way. So you're saying that um, the sort of more traditional value investing, there has been opportunities over the last five, 10 years. Or are you saying that there are opportunities that are coming up sh- soon or? You know, it's, it's really hard to say. I mean, I think probably the value decile will begin to outperform. I've seen some interesting research that shows um, that when you're heading into recession, you know, value dramatically underperforms. And that's what we've seen. You know, we, we, we went into the worst recession, you know, since um, <clears throat> the Great Depression. And value led the way to the downside uh, into that, you know, as a decile in the market. Why is that? Well, it's because a lot of those stocks are um, cyclically sensitive. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and you look at the, the stocks that have performed well, all these lockdown stocks, Zoom and Netflix and all these things, in, in no way can they be considered value stocks, but they've actually benefited from the pandemic. So there's also a unique um, you know, uh, thing at work going on right now where, where, you know, the situation, the environment that we're in has exacerbated this, this value because, you know, traditional bricks and mortar companies, uh, especially you know, airlines, cruise lines, retailers, you know, especially hit hard as a part of the, the pandemic. And so 
Um, but you know, a lot of research shows that coming out of recession, value dramatically outperforms. Uh, Dan Rasmussen put out a, an email over the weekend showing you know value dramatically outperforms coming out of recession. And why is that? It's because that the earnings of these companies rebound so strongly that they, the, the earnings are growing faster than the growth stocks. And so, you know, values outperformance um, coming out of the session is, is very, very significant. Uh, so I think we're probably on the verge of, of uh, you know, a, a real strong value trend. And I think that's what we're seeing over the last couple of months is we're starting to see some of these growth names struggle and some of these, uh, you know, value sectors really start to try and bottom. Yeah. Did we see this sort of same thing happen with value back in, 10 years ago that this sort of financial crisis we didn't really see it um well i guess we did yeah we saw that those stocks get hammered into i mean especially bank stocks right got absolutely crushed yeah. going into the but they've never really recovered a lot of them well at least in the uk I yeah mean, I can't, yeah you're right i mean that, that sector has kind of been permanently permanently damaged um you know by ultra low interest rates, interest rates. And, and different things and then also that a lot of those uh, companies just took, took such huge hits in the financial crisis that they never really, really came back. But to me, this, this value rotation feels a lot more like um, 2000. And we saw you know, a big value shop, yeah. close up shop last week, decide they're closing. And that's very reminiscent of what you know, um, Julian Robertson closing his fund in 2000, right at the peak, just when value underperformed so, so for so long by so much. It's really tough to keep investors in your funds comes back to this thing we were talking about at the beginning. And so, you know, when you see a lot of these things shut down, it, it a lot of times can be kind of one of those hallmark moments of, you know, that the turn. Um, and again, in, you know, yeah, 60, yeah. 68, I think was when Buffett, Warren Buffett shut down his partnership saying that, you know, there's just not enough value opportunities. And too many people are speculating, and I just don't know how to, to profit in this environment. So, you know, Buffett called it quits in 68. Stocks went from 68 to 82, went nowhere. And uh, some, same thing in 2000, Julian Robertson, famous value investor, called it quits. Stocks went nowhere from 2000 to 2013. I think we could be kind of witnessing another, another similar time where you have in, you know, big value investors shut down today. And, uh, you know, it could be just on the very beginning of a value you know, uh, that kind of rotation trade into value out of growth. We hope you're enjoying the episode. For interviews like this every Thursday, subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And while you're there, make sure you give us a star rating and leave guest suggestions along with any other feedback in the review section. Now, back to the show. So in terms of your outlook for the US like equity market uh, going forward, if there is, the, are you you're sort of anticipating stagflation scenario, um, but potentially value and uh, to, to outperform? I, yeah, I do think that's right. I do think probably um, value is probably going to make a make a comeback. You look at um, you know bank stocks again are trading at six eight times earnings. Um, you know, energy stocks are incredibly cheap. Those are kind of the uh, when you look at value. And this is part of my problem with quantitative value. Look at a lot of these quantitative value funds and they have no exposure to energy. And I just don't understand that. Um, so, you know, it's really hard for me to make, you know, it's much harder for me to make a call on will quantitative value come back or will, you know, the energy sector or these things. To me, um, you know, like I said, there's been terrific opportunities uh, for disciplined traditional value investors 
over the last you know 10 years so uh, i think probably the way to go about playing this is, is to just do that rather than try and wait for a turn in quantitative value mm -hmm. and globally do you see do you see us equities have had their sort of um dana some so far and, and maybe emerging markets become more interesting in the future especially if we're seeing going to see the dollar go down where do you because obviously us is, i mean the last 10 years it's been the place to be hasn't it so do you see that changing going forward absolutely i think you know the us equity market is probably the most overvalued equity market on the planet um and every other market is is relatively cheap to one degree or another so you know i, I think um <clears throat> Emerging markets definitely look cheap, and if you are bearish on the dollar, I think those those two things, yep, the combination of the cheap equity markets and the currency tailwind going forward means you probably want to own some emerging. Um, and you know, like my friends at GMO have pointed out, if, if you apply value discipline to emerging, I mean, you're looking at probably really good returns over the next. I think they use a seven-year time frame. I think. Every, in terms of real returns, they forecast negative returns for almost every asset class except for emerging value. I think they're putting about an 8% real return on emerging value for the next seven years. So that, that, that is one area where there is a, you know, a great deal of opportunity, I think. But probably, um, you know, it, it, just for U.S. equity investors, I think home country bias today might be more dangerous than it's ever been because um you know the big u.s equity market has outperformed for the last 10 years more to, to to a greater degree than it ever has been or has in history and so um, in terms of currency and relative valuations i think you definitely want to be diversified overseas right now mm -hmm. and is, are there any places in particular in emerging markets etc that, that are sort of appealing to you well um you know this is kind of controversial but you look at what what makes up an emerging markets fund and it's like 50 percent china typically yeah and so you have to be bullish on china if you're bullish emerging markets and so why would you be bullish china well everyone says well they have you know they've got taken on so much debt well the us has taken on a massive amount of debt and we don't have the ability to grow our way out of it like china does china has the ability to grow their way out of a lot of that debt um and in china you know so china just still has a ton of growth ahead of it the stocks are are very cheap relative to the united states and um you, you know it's just tough to you know to to uh to this this is the problem i think meb faber's done a lot of good work is you look at okay what are the cheapest countries around the planet because they typically outperform over the next one two three years but a lot of times when you look at them it's like turkey you know, several years ago, it was Greece. And you're like, oh, my, I can't invest in Greece. Are you kidding me? <laughs> and the price gets so cheap, though, that, you know, Greece goes up 150% over the next two years. And so, you know, I think that's, that's probably what a lot of people are really uncomfortable doing, but they should be doing, is looking at what are these cheap markets around the world. And, and yeah, I mean, uh, you know, China is one of them. And people say, well, you know, the trade war and all this stuff. And, and uh yeah that's probably what why china is, is relatively so cheap right now yeah are you um a believer in this sort of it appears to be the contrarian trade like going where other people haven't haven't sort of you know they're not the hot hot sector um and looking for where's value 
where people aren't looking yet because that you know if as soon as it does become hot there's you know disproportional like um uh, potential returns there but obviously against the sort of if something is trending positively it can continue for a while right? like, just like we've seen a 10-year run in u.s equities what's the what's the strategy you prefer to sort of go with there uh in terms of um overseas markets and things i, I suppose just more fundamentally the invest the contra like investing where people aren't and trying to fight or going with the flow where the, you know right do, do you see what I mean? that's a great point because contrarianism for for contrarianism's sake is usually a bad bad idea um you know the crowd is right most of the time uh you know and that's what i was kind of talking about with that momentum side of things there's only it's only a turning points when the, when the crowd is wrong and so i think you have to use that contrarianism very selectively <clears throat> you know, as one of my favorite quotes is from Howard Marks's book, The Most Important Thing, he says, to, to generate outsized returns, you have to have a non-consensus view about value, and you have to be right. <laughs> and that's important. You know, a lot of people have non-consensus views, but they're not right, um, because the consensus is right most of the time. And so I, I think that's an important thing to think about is, is okay, uh, I have a non-consensus view, but how can I you know, I have to understand the consensus uh, as well as anybody and then understand why that's wrong in order to come up with a good um, investment thesis. And so I think that, that contrarianism is probably too simplified of an investment strategy on its own. It has to be paired with other things. And do you, do you typically wait for some sign that, because obviously you can be, I think it was Jim Rogers we had in the, you can be in the right trade, but obviously the timing is the other thing that's so important, is sort of what we're discussing now. Um, do you wait until there are solid indications that money's moving that way? I mean, you talked about insider buying, but how much, how, mu how many other things do you need to make it sort of like, okay, this actually looks like, yeah, there's gonna, the money's going to start flowing this way and believe what I'm believing? Yeah, I mean, I, you know, it probably would be really smart of me to wait until price starts to validate my opinion, but I usually can't resist investing <laughs> before then. Uh, to me, you know, there's the three things that I look at, um, really four. And my friend Todd Harrison um, has really kind of pounded the table on this, that it's, you know, fundamentals, sentiment, technicals, and macro are the kind of the four things you want to line up. So fundamentals, you know, is it cheap? How cheap is it? Has it, you know, and to me, I like to look at history. Is it cheap relative to its own history? Um, you know, you can see a lot of stocks and sectors, you know, they trade maybe between five and 10 times you know, enterprise value, EBITDA, or whatever kind of indicator you want. And so, you know, kind of when it gets around five, it's pretty cheap historically. Um, you know, in terms of sentiment, we've, we've talked about that a fair amount. You know, what is, how do people feel about this? And I want to buy things that I think are extremely hated or absolutely ignored. Um, and, you know, so technicals we, we talked about too, you know, I'm looking at momentum mainly. And I want, to I want to see signs that momentum is really tailing off. And, you know, a good, a good sign of that, and this is a lot of traders told Jack Schwager this in, you know, his books, is that when you see a stock or a currency or commodity or whatever it is, when there's bad news that hits the tape and it stops going down, the price doesn't go down anymore. That's a really strong sign that a lot of the negativity is already in the price. And so that's kind of the thing in terms of momentum that I want to see is just bad news hitting the tape 
but it's not making new lows. To me, that's like, okay, well, what, what can make it break down to new lows if already all this bad news isn't able to? So to me, that, that's a key sign. I, I, I want to see something like that. And then in terms of macro, you have to have a macro thesis. And, and we talked about that as well. For, for in terms of energy, it's the Fed's going to create inflation. That's, they have to uh, in order to pay for all the debt that, that uh, the country's taken on. And in that process, you're going to want to own things that are um, you know, protected against inflation and just by chance. Energy is, is uh, the best way to do that. And it's also the, the, the cheapest sector yeah. in the market right now. That is crazy. And do you, do you think it's inevitable that we, inflation will come based on what's, what, what's happened so far? I know they're trying to do that, but we've talked about stagflation. There's other things at work. Yeah, the Fed can't, can't do it by themselves. And that's obviously why we haven't had it. They printed so much money for 10 years. But I think it's the, the attitude in Washington that changes. The fiscal authorities have the ability to create inflation. If they go, and, and I think what we're going to see, no matter who wins the presidential election, is some type of infrastructure plan. We're going to have a weak, like I said, stagflationary type of uh, economy. I don't think we're going to have a very strong company, economy coming out of the pandemic generally. Um, uh, and that's what happens a lot of times when you just take on too, met, too much debt in terms of companies. They just don't have the money to spend coming out. And so it's going to be a weak recovery. So I think the government, no matter who's in charge, is going to try and, and pursue some type of infrastructure bill. And that's where you get trillions of dollars put directly into the economy, into the hands of workers and people who are going to spend it. And the Fed monetizing, you know, being, being forced to monetize that debt. That is a recipe for inflation. So I think by the time we see that, by the time we see an infrastructure bill announced, we'll already see the inflation trade starting to, to take off. Mm, interesting. And I wanted to quickly talk about now, there's a really interesting article that you had uh, about Tesla and Goldman and SoftBank as well. Um, are you able to, it's about the recent sort of um, like explosive price rise in Tesla uh, related to the options activity that's been going on. And you did quite a lot of research into this. Are you able to sort of go, go into uh, explain a bit about what you, you found? Sure. I mean, you know, a lot of what has gone on with the options market is certain people have realized, and this is retail traders, but obviously more than just retail traders have realized that if you buy enough call options, you're going to force the price of the underlying to go up. Uh, and so, you know, just take Tesla, for example, you know, if you're buying hundreds of that, someone's buying hundreds of thousands of call options every day. Uh, the market makers, um, you know, the dealers, options dealers are going to be short calls. And so how do they handle that? Well, they go buy Tesla stock, common stock, to hedge their short call position. And the more Tesla stock goes up, the more, the more of it they have to buy to hedge. And so what happens is you have uh, a lot of this call buying, makes the stock price go up, makes hedgers, you know, uh, through hedgers buying it. And so it becomes like a, a, a virtuous cycle. And I think it's not just retail investors um, that have realized this and has been written about on the Wall Street Bets message board for, for months. I mean, really since the beginning of the year where these kind of uh, groups of traders have decided, okay, today let's buy Tesla options. We're going to push the price up. Um, you know, Goldman Sachs and Morgan Stanley, the two of them have lent, you know, money to Solar City. They've lent money to Elon Musk uh, against his Tesla shares directly. And, um, you know, Tesla's been one of the biggest beneficiaries of this trade. Um, and so, you know, I, I, 
I obviously I, I, I wrote this. I don't have any evidence to suggest that that this has happened, but it certainly uh, would make a great deal of sense for somebody like Goldman to just buy buy a bunch of Tesla calls, because then you essentially guarantee that your um, your uh, debtor that you've lent money to will be able to make good, will be able to pay off all their debts. Uh, and so Tesla's been able to sell stock in the open market. Uh, Elon Musk's shares, have, you know, appreciated. So all those loans are going to get paid back. And, you know, Goldman has come out and said they made $100 million buying Tesla options. And so to me, this just strikes me as, uh, you know, classic, you know, Wall Street um, opportunism. And obviously, there's no, there's no evidence that Goldman did this on purpose. But when they say they made $100 million trading Tesla options, and then they have all these loans out to Tesla, Solar City, Elon personally, um, seems like there's a huge conflict there. It, it's, yeah, it does indeed. Um, and what, what do you think, I mean, this sort of options activity is unheard of, and especially with, with this sort of scenario, what's the, is it, um, are you able to hold the price at these levels? Or does it require options activity to continue at these levels? What, what's, what do you think's the, uh, you know, what's going to happen in the end? Well, I think, you know, we saw it, like I mentioned, it was in late, um, late last year where we saw this option activity really start to take off where, you know, it was Wall Street bets, traders saying, hey, let's do this in different calls. And we saw kind of a, a blow off into February. And I think part of the, the reason the downside was so dramatic uh, in that crash, that February, March crash in the market was what happens when all these calls expire worthless? Well, market makers are left with hundreds of millions of shares of stock that they now have to liquidate because they don't no longer need to hedge because the calls, their short call positions expired. So um, as long as this call buying um, keeps going, then you're forcing the market makers to stay long. But as soon as, soon as this call buying you know, slows down or can't be perpetuated, and I think we're seeing this over the last couple of months why the market can't power higher really, um, you know, you could see a, a liquidation too. And obviously that's not the only factor that would cause another steep sell-off, but it, it can certainly exacerbate a sell-off when, you know, mar- when prices start going down, hedgers don't need to own as much stock. So even before those call options expire, they'll start selling off common because they don't need the hedges as much when, when, when the, the prices start going down. So it really a lot of it, this is just one of these strategies and there's a lot of them that we've seen just kind of rise in the last three to five years that exacerbate the upside and exacerbate the downside and you look back to january of 2018 and we had the volmageddon crash i think that was february of 18 then late in, uh, uh late 18 uh, we had another kind of crashing type of a market you know with a rally to new highs and then a big you know even bigger crash in february and march i think this this rising volatility uh, environment over the last three years is going to continue because of the, the more esoteric strategies that are being employed. Yeah, it's really interesting. It's, um, not, I've, I've not, uh, it's not been explained to me in that sort of manner before. And it's really um, the amount of things that are going on influencing price at the moment is, is crazy um, and scary as well, I suppose, because, you know, how do you play? Do you stay away from, from th- stocks that are getting manipulated? so much is that is that like a warning signal you think or or are they just opportunities if you know how it works that you can take advantage of well i think you know what i'm probably more uh interested in um than kind of betting on quantitative value making a comeback 
is betting on some of these these stocks that have been the, the speculative favorites been pushed up by the option fund, you know, betting on them kind of reverting to some sort of mean, which in a lot of cases means a lot of these stocks, just like we saw in the dot-com bust in 2001-2, a lot of these stocks can go down 90% easy. I mean, uh, famously, Scott McNeely said that, you know, investors were crazy just to pay 10 times sales for his stocks on microsystems in 2000. Well, you got so many stocks trading at 20, 30. I think Zoom trades at 100 times sales. Um, you know, there are a lot of these stocks that uh, when these trades revert, there's going to be a ton of downside in, in some of these growth names. And so um, I, I do think there's opportunity there. And uh, why hasn't that happened already, do you think? It's just there's the demand's still supporting it. You see, I, I think I saw... Uh, macro trade is it macro trade record inflows basically into the tech sector etc still is that what's supporting price yeah well there's still just a, a speculative fever that's kind of i think it's starting to tail off um but it does feel like it yeah i mean and i think that's you know really sense i think the peak of that speculative fever was in back in june um when you saw a lot of those those that was kind of the peak in momentum for the rally is kind of the way i look at it was back in june so, you know, that was kind of, to me, the peak in that speculative fever, and it's starting to tail off. Um, but there's still tons of call buying. You know, uh, you mentioned SoftBank is still buying billions of dollars of common stock and billions of dollars in call options, um, you know, which is astounding, right? I mean, essentially, they've realized we can go raise billions of dollars in, in uh, markets and just use that to speculate in the public markets and uh, you know, make two, three, four, five, five times their money. It's very rem reminiscent of you know the bubble we saw in Japan in the late '90s, where you had companies invest in their cash and stocks because you know they they knew that you know everybody thought you had to do that in order to make money. You know, SoftBank is is kind of manufacturing its own profits right now, but at some point. Um, the 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 dry powder and the cash to keep that going and the will um, to keep it going will will uh, evaporate. Yeah, very interesting. How how lo much longer do you think it can be supported? Because uh, some of these things can last long. You know, a bubble can last longer than people can uh, think sometimes. And and how, how what's I mean, we're saying momentum's declining a little bit, but you know, if things start breaching all time highs again, you could just have another sort of push again higher how do you tell when these are sort of uh times to to pull out and stuff like this what well, you know i think it's um you're absolutely right i mean these things can can go on you know seemingly indefinitely um and it's really just paying attention to i think those technical signs um that really help me try and understand and the only reason i would be trying to short anything right now is that these signs of momentum are really waning in a lot of areas, individual stocks in the broad indexes. Um, like I said, if there's, it kind of works the opposite for me in terms of short selling. If there's strong upside momentum, I'm, there's no, no chance in hell you're going to get me to short something. Um, I'm only going to look to short something if it looks like that, you know, it's had very strong momentum, extremely overvalued and starting to to wane and potentially roll over and then once i get that confirmation that it's rolling over you know that that's really where you what, what you want um my friend bill fleckenstein has said you know one of the best short sellers maybe the best short seller i've i've ever known is that he looks to, to shoot shoot stocks in the back i want to wait until they've rolled over and when they're really starting to get that 
strong downside momentum, that's when you really kind of have a, 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 good, um, a heavy short position. And otherwise, you need to be very, very cautious in terms of standing in the way of any of these things because you've seen so many of them go up five, six, seven, eight fold in just a matter of months. So, I mean, you, you, you can't, you just can't get in the way of that. That's amazing. Um, I just wanted to wrap up um, the podcast. We do, we do this quick fire round, which is basically uh, there's six questions here, but we're only looking for, you know, very short answers um, for each one. Um, is that right if I just roll through those now? Absolutely. Let's do it. Uh, the first one is top tip for your younger self. Uh, go to work for somebody you admire. <laughs> I, I worked for somebody that I didn't admire too much. And that was uh, a learning process, but I think it's better advice than, you know, go work for somebody you admire. Very interesting. Like, so find your mentor. Is that, is, it sort of, is that what you're sort of implying, especially at an early age? Yeah, and not just in terms of their skill and success, but in terms of their personal values and, and all that. Okay. What do you believe your source of alpha is? If you could, if you could narrow it down to one primary thing, Oh man, um, that's tough. I, I, I think, honestly, I mean, and probably most people feel this way, but I, I do feel like I am a true contrarian. I will go in and buy things. One of my favorite chapters um, in Market Wizards was uh, the Jim Rogers chapter. And you listen to Jim Rogers and he talks about wanting to invest in North Korea, right? He talks about the most contrarian ideas you've ever heard of. And, you know, a lot of people think they're contrarian. But you're only contrarian if everybody thinks you're crazy. And so I'm willing to go inside <laughs> those areas where people think I'm crazy. <laughs> um, favorite book? It doesn't have to be trading or finance. Oh, man. Um, well, my favorite trading book I just mentioned was Market Wizards. The Schwager series is just so valuable. I go back and read them over and over again. Awesome. Uh, where or who do you go for, go to, sorry, for market insights, if anyone? Well, I, I, I've named a, a ton of people um, during the show, and I, I really love to kind of highlight them. And that's why I started my podcast, really, is to try and highlight the people who I find, um, you know, offer unique insights. And Twitter has been very valuable for me. A lot of those people that I've had on my podcast are people I follow on Twitter, um, and I only follow them because they provide such unique insights. So I would suggest, you know, just those people that I've, I've highlighted in those ways. Yep. Uh, I've got favorite place you've traveled and why? Favorite place I've traveled. Um, I don't really travel much. I'm kind of a homebody. I actually, I actually hate travel. <laughs> um, I'm really kind of a, I don't like crowds. Uh, I, I, when I was a baby, my mom, I used to throw up when my mom would take me to, to crowded places. Okay. Um, and so probably I like to go to the Oregon coast. Um, incredibly remote uh beaches there's, there's no development and, and it's just beautiful wide open natural spaces awesome that's great and finally top prediction for next year we've discussed a few of them here but i mean maybe we can narrow it down to one if, if you're happy doing it yeah i think the one that i have the most confidence in is is uh energy is going to outperform um dramatically and it might come from the rest of the market declining and, and energy you know not declining as much but i do yeah yeah energy is going to outperform dramatically yeah really interesting um brilliant i mean i'd be great to finish uh by if you could tell people where the best places to find you to you know, follow your commentary etc yeah absolutely I, I uh i mentioned twitter um i i'm kind of a twitter addict uh i i i do a ton of reading every morning and i i usually tweet out 
um, most of the good stuff that I read. So it's like eight or 10 articles, maybe a morning. Um, and if that's, so you can follow me on Twitter. It's at Jesse Felder. And if that's too much for you, I put together um, like a Saturday morning email with the five things during the week, whether it's a chart or an article that, that was, you know, I, I found the most interesting. So um, you can sign up for that free email newsletter at my website, which is thefelderreport.com. Amazing. Thanks very much, Jesse. I've, I've really enjoyed that. Um, really gone into some, some sort of areas that I've not, um, not talked to other guests about, and it's been really interesting to do that. Uh, and also, I mean, I think the opportunities that you, you've surfaced there definitely should be on everyone's radar. Um, and should go and, can, they can go and research themselves now. Um, but great, thanks very much. And um, yeah, I, I hope to work with you again soon. Well, you know, that was a lot of fun. So uh, thank you much for uh, the invitation and uh, yeah, had a great time. Thanks for listening, everyone. Just a quick note before we sign off. If you're looking for an easily digestible daily update on the markets, this might be of interest. Opto Updates is our short newsletter sent every day during the trading week, giving you a bulleted list of the top seven stories from the global stock markets. We've done the hard work for you, highlighting relevant opportunities and trends. And in addition, we'll also keep you notified of any new products, stock reports, or webinars from the Opto world. If you're interested, sign up using the link in the show notes. And thanks also to CoFruition for consulting on and producing the show. Until next time.